This is the podcast of the California Institute of Integral Studies, where we bring you conversations and lectures from our public program series, featuring world-renowned scholars, leaders, authors, artists, and thinkers. In this episode, author Ayelet Waldman is joined in conversation by CIIS writing professor Carolyn Cook to discuss her critically acclaimed memoir, A Really Good Day, that chronicles her experiments with LSD. This event was recorded on March 7, 2017 in front of a live audience in San Francisco. To make sure you never miss an episode of the CIIS Public Programs Podcast, find us and subscribe on iTunes or on our website at ciis.edu slash podcast. just a delight to have you at CIIS. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. I forgot to ask you if you would read the opening, just the opening of the, of the book. If I you give it to me. It. Mm-hmm. I wanted just to situate us in, in the book, um, just to... Yeah. Great. This morning, I took LSD. The table I'm sitting at right now is not breathing... My keyboard is not exploding in psychedelic fireworks, lightning bolts shooting from the letters R and P. I'm not giddy and frantic or zoned out with bliss. I feel no transcendent sense of oneness with the universe or with the divine. On the contrary, I feel normal. Well, except for one thing, I'm content and relaxed. I'm busy but not stressed. That might be normal for some people, but it isn't for me. I didn't drop a tab of acid. What I took is known as a microdose, a sub-therapeutic dose of a drug administered at a quantity low enough to elicit no adverse side effects, yet high enough for a measurable cellular response. A microdose of a psychedelic drug is approximately one-tenth of a typical dose. A recreational user of LSD looking for a trip complete with visual hallucinations might ingest between 100 and 150 micrograms of the drug. I took 10. Microdosing of psychedelics, so new and renegade a concept that I had to teach it to my computer's spell check, now I'm sure it knows, it's probably in the dictionary, was popularized by a psychologist and former psychedelic researcher named James Fadiman in a series of lectures and podcast interviews and in a book published in 2012 called The Psychedelic Explorer's Guide, Safe, Therapeutic, and Sacred Journeys. Since 2010, Dr. Fadiman has been collecting reports from individuals who experimented with regular microdosing of LSD and psilocybin, a naturally occurring chemical found in a variety of different species of mushroom. Soon after his book's publication, in a lecture at a conference on the potential therapeutic value of psychedelic drugs, Fadiman presented what he had learned from reading the dozens of reports mailed and emailed to him, some, though by no means all of them, anonymously. He said about microdosing, what many people are reporting at the end of the day, they say, that was a really good day. A really good day. Predictably, regularly, unexceptionally. That is all I have ever wanted. Thank you. Thank you. So a really good day is then the chronicle of your effort to do something for yourself that um, 
rounds and rounds of antidepressants and mood stabilizers and sleep aids and antipsychotic drugs couldn't do. So and stimulant for, drugs and all sorts of drugs, yes. Yeah. Could you describe a little bit how you came to this experiment? So it really was it was born of desperation. Um, about 15 years ago now, I was diagnosed with a moon disorder that at first, my, my first diagnosis was bipolar 2, cyclothemia. Eventually, I ended up with a diagnosis of premenstrual dysphoric disorder, which if you don't know what that is, it's basically PMS, but on steroids. So um, through the course of my treatment, I, as many people who have any kind of mental illness, I went through a variety of medications looking for a medication that would work. Um, you know, I tried every, I mean, if you, you can throw out a name, I probably tried it. Um, most drugs didn't work for me. Sometimes something would work. It would work for a little while. It stopped working. And then eventually I reached this great stasis where I had a wonderful medication regimen. Um, this was after I, I received the diagnosis of premenstrual dysphoric disorder. Basically, for a week before my period, I would take SSRIs. In my case, I took Celexa. And that was it. No other medication. It was real. I mean, sometimes around ovulation, if I get unusually prickly, I might take something like um, Xanax, like half a Xanax or something. But it was, it was a terrific regimen. It worked for a very long time. But when you're a woman of a certain age, in your, say, 40s, you go through this period called perimenopause. Um, it's not menopause. It's the period before menopause. And it's actually the period that's the hardest to deal with. It's when you can no longer predict your period with any accuracy. Sometimes you get three periods in one month. Yay. Sometimes you don't get it for four months and then you get it for 25 days. And um, the problem for me was particularly acute because in order to use my medication and use it effectively, I had to predict with pinpoint accuracy when I was going to get my period so I could start my medication a week before. So everything went on the rail, off the rails at that point, and I just started getting more and more depressed. I've never had a clinical depression. Um, I've been bummed out, and mostly I experienced kind of mixed state, which is part depression, part irritable. It's really just being excessively irritable. But I started getting more and more depressed, and I eventually became suicidal. And I tried different medications, and nothing worked. And I was, I remember standing in front of my medicine cabinet, kind of assessing the contents to see what would, you know, do the job most efficiently. And at that point, I had, you know, at least one bottle of pretty much every SSRI antipsych. I mean, anything you could imagine, I had it. But I realized, I, I remember standing there and thinking, oh, I know what's going to kill me most effectively. And does anybody have a guess what that is? The thing that's in your medicine cabinet, too? That's the drug, Tylenol. Um, that's the drug that if you take it, it the, the LD50, the toxic dose of Tylenol is so small that all I would have needed was a handful. And it was at that moment, you know, I have four children. And uh, at that moment when I realized that this, that I, a mother of four, was actually contemplating, you know, assessing the viability of different medications for achieving effective suicide, I thought, okay, I need to do something and I need to do something dramatic. And I had been reading about microdosing, um... I had read Fadiman's book and it sort of showed up in my house. I'm not even sure whether I bought it or whether it arrived because when you're a writer, books kind of appear. It's this, this is the great side benefit of being a writer. Um, and I just decided to give it a shot. I was desperate. I'd never tried psychedelic drugs before. I 
took some mushrooms or something that somebody told me were mushrooms once in college. I think they were probably shiitakes dipped in horseshit. Um, <laughs> but uh, I never tripped, um, so I was definitely scared. But um, I just decided I, you know, I wanted to do something dramatic, and I didn't want to go to the hospital. So I thought I would give this a try first. So um, you began the experiment. You um, documented each day. You took right. you took the drug. Yes, one day out of three. Yeah. Maybe so the, the it's like Bridget Jones's diary, right? right? Exactly. Your, there's like there's a protocol that Fadiman developed that's actually uh, a really terrific protocol. Um, the day one, you take the drug. Day two, you don't. But interestingly, particularly interesting if you have any experience with. Um, if you're if you're interested in biochemistry, you feel the effects the second day, which makes no sense from a biochemical point of view because uh, the half life of the drug is less than that. But nonetheless, you do feel there's something about the LSD molecule that's stickier than we thought um, because you do feel those effects the next day, the kind of positive sense of well being even more than the first day, and then the third day is your kind of reset day, the day where you're just sort of your normal self that you can then compare the first two days with. So I. I, and I kept copious notes. And within about 10 days, I realized, oh, I'm not actually keeping notes. I'm writing a book. So the first draft of the book I wrote in the month that I did the experiment. I wanted to ask about that. So you were writing a book about microdosing while you were right. typing day 11. <laughs> yeah, exactly. And in a way, you know, it's interesting. We, we now know that L, what L, one of the things that LSD does is it causes different parts of your brain to commun that don't normally communicate to communicate in novel ways. And I, I feel like this is the book that LSD wrote because um, there, the book is about lots of different things. It's about the um, it's about LSD, the history of LSD. It's about the neurochemistry of LSD. It's about my marriage. It's about um, my family history of mental illness. It's about the war on drugs. It's about the history of the war on drugs, the current policies, and all of those things kind of intertwine, I think, in a pretty effective way. And I don't know that I could have written that book if I wasn't microdosing. It would never have occurred to me that all those different strands could be braided into a single whole. Mm. Fascinating. So maybe um, just to connect a couple of those strands, because they are really interesting, um, you had a lot of anxiety about procuring the LSD. And yeah, you know, I thought initially I didn't. Initially, I, th I live in Berkeley. I thought like I'd walk out my door and orange sunshine would rain down on my head. Um, it never occurred to me that it would be so hard to find LSD. But it turns out if you're like a middle-aged mom of four, you don't have access to the underground drug market as readily as you. And the one place I wasn't willing to do, I wasn't willing to ask my kids, which might have been the most effective guy. I mean, who knows? But um, so I basically started asking around and everyone was like, no, we don't have any acid. Acid, who would have that? I even asked like all these, I know all these burners, they claimed to have no LSD. I don't believe that, but at least they they wouldn't give it to me. And it got to the point where I was, you know, Fadiman in his book, he's very sweet. He's like, be discreet. And I just, after a while, I just discretion. Your specialty, wins. right? Yes, exactly. I was like asking, I remember I was, I was in this, uh, this restaurant that I like where they have a good breakfast and lots of people work there. Um, and have their coffee. And I was just basically saying to anybody, so do you know where you can get any acid? And this one guy is like, I know a guy. And he told me this story about this professor who he said was very elderly and um, had 
uh, been microdosing for his whole life and um, or the last few decades of his life and was but was reaching the end of his life and maybe would be able to you know give me his excess since he was going to die anyway and I was like that's not a real story I don't buy that for a second so I continued you know asking virtual strangers for acid until one day I opened up my mailbox and there's this adorable package in it it's addressed to me and the return address reads Lewis Carroll and it has all these like ancient stamps like stamps from the 80s you know with money like they're not forever stamps <laughs> so many of them pasted all over this package and i open it up and there's like there's a poem and instructions and a tiny little cobalt blue bottle basically you know drink me and i'm not an um, idiot i didn't drink the bottle that arrived in the mail i'm not crazy i tested it um, to make sure that it was what it said it was so does anybody ha have any ideas of where i bought my lsd testing kit Amazon. Yes, I did. You can buy books and toilet paper and drug testing kits. So I bought my LSD testing kit and I did my little experiment and satisfied myself that it did in fact contain LSD uh, diluted in, I believe, distilled water. Um, and then I embarked on this experiment. And how quickly did you notice a difference? Well, the first day. So, I mean, I was pretty much anhedonic before I began the experiment. I was suicidal. And I took the LSD one morning. Nothing happened. I, and then after about an hour or so, I looked out my window and um, the dogwood tree was in bloom. And I had this thought, which was not like the flowers weren't flying off into the, there was nothing psychedelic about it. But I just thought, oh, look, the dogwood's in bloom. Look how pretty it is. And I hadn't noticed anything beautiful in months and I mean my spirits lifted and of course I don't know if it's a placebo effect we need a lot more research to know whether what I was experiencing was real or whether it was a placebo effect but like that very day the bleakest darkest part of my depression lifted and it wasn't like it was a perfect month there were definitely I had days of irritability but I wasn't you know I wasn't planning I wasn't thinking about killing myself you know, half the day as I had been before. It was really, it was very dramatic. It was also the best writing month of your life. Oh, yeah. So, you know, when you're writing, there's this wonderful thing we call flow when you're engaged in any kind of activity, especially creative activities, where you sort of lose track of time, you're immersed completely in the experience, um, you look up and three hours have passed and your brain is making all sorts of connections and you're, you're kind of at your peak creative flow. And um, that happens every once in a while. You know, it's the greatest thing about being a writer. It's why we, it's a drug, right, flow. It's why we keep doing it. But most days are just terrible. Most days are you just sitting in front of your computer with like one constipated sentence after another, each one shittier than the last. And, um, and I seemed when I was microdosing to be able to access flow much more readily in a way that was really satisfying. You had uh, also had that experience before microdosing um, as a person diagnosed with bipolar disorder yeah. too. You, Hypomania. You Ain't had that great. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. So this was very different from hypomania. Um, hypomania is wonderful, but it's also terrifying because the hypomania can get, 
you know, there's always the fear. I've never been manic, but there's always a fear when you're hypomanic that you could be manic. And then there's also these things you do, like, so you write a lot, that's terrific, but you also tell a bunch of strangers at a party everything about your sexual history. Um, you know, you always know the person who's maybe needs a, a little meds adjustment because they're regaling the entire party with all sorts of inappropriate details. So, like, there's that edge to it, which can be really, it can feel really good, but it's it can be dangerous. And then it can actually be dangerous because you can spill over into the more dangerous parts of um, of mania, you know. And there's the whole shopping problem. Like hypomania is characterized by spending a lot of money. And so my husband would have these tricks where he'd figure out, you know, he would be able to assess my mood. And one of them was um, the recycling. If there were a lot of boxes in the recycling, he'd be like, okay, we're in for a bumpy ride. <laughs> um. One of the adorable things about you is how honest you are. Um, uh, adorable or terrifying? Depends <laughs> a little terrifying. On the day. Um, I don't live with you. It's adorable. Um, <laughs> Ask you, my children. <laughs> um, in the book, you really share um, a lot. Um, and one of one of the really moving pieces, I thought, were sort of the love texts that you sent to your husband when you'd taken three Ambien. Yeah, those crazy. So the I, I actually reproduced those. Be- I mean, that chapter, I if I had a soapbox anywhere in the book, I mean, the drug policy reform is definitely my soapbox, but I don't want anyone to take Ambien ever again. Is anybody here taking Ambien? <laughs> Stop. It is a terrible terrible drugs. Let me tell you what, what Ambien does. Ambien prevents you from cre- from assimilating memories of positive experiences, but enhances your ability to assimilate memories of negative experiences. So basically, all you remember is the crappy <laughs> stuff. And for six years, that was, I, mean, I don't even know if I had six bad years or if I just remember them bad because I was on Ambien for six years. Um, it's really just a toxic, toxic drug. And it doesn't even give you the sleep that you think you're getting because it's, it's, you're basically sedated, but you're not really getting the rest and, um, uh, that you need from normal sleep. So no more Ambien, no more Ambien. Um, but I also, when I would travel, I would do this insane thing where I'd take an Ambien and I'm like, well, that's not working. I'll take another. And one point, I think I'd taken three and I sent Michael this ever more incoherent lunatic stream of texts. So it's funny. So I put it in the book. Yeah, it's reproduced perfectly in the book. And you, you have. And he's just texting like, oh, honey, stop, please, please stop. 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 Go stop. to bed, go to bed, go to bed, close your eyes, go to sleep, please. And I'm just like, slurp me, sniff, look at <laughs> Hi. But it's it's very revealing. You also um, you also share what it's like to live with someone as irritable as you. Yes. And um, at at one point you you talk about uh, Michael going to another room to eat almonds. Well, that's our almond test. That's yeah. we do that all the time. So that's how we know what like one of the things that he does in order to assess my mood. So we have the boxes, but also um, he will stand in the kitchen. With a handful of almonds, I will go into the living room. We Our house is, we have a Berkeley brown shingle, so the rooms are all pretty close together. And he will crunch. And if I think to myself or say aloud, shut the fuck up, then we know that I am irritable. <laughs> I need to do something about that. And if I'm like, oh, he's eating almonds, no big deal, then my mood's okay. So, it, and it's like, you know, there's, I have a kind of misophonia, which is that certain sounds in certain moods will drive me crazy. 
Um, usually they're like f- people eating. Does anybody have that? Where like you hear someone chewing and you Misophonia. just want to. Misophonia. And it Misophonia. makes you, it, what it triggers is a rage response. Like you get really angry at them. It's also triggered um, sometimes by watching people do things like hair twirling. And it's a, it's actually a measurable response to like your adrenaline surges all sorts of things happen to you if you suffer from misophonia and you it's not you there's nothing you can control and weirdly it is often characterized by a combination of anger and a uh, sexual stimulation so you're both angry and aroused horrible scenario awful um so i i like to keep that at bay as best i can just uh it's so it's funny it's just um you know they're like they're before i had a name for it i was just like when i hear people chewing gum i want to kill them (laughs) or sleep with them don't know which one (laughs) great um Uh, I wanted to read the famous quote that you cite from um, Aldous Huxley's Doors of Perception. Um, It's just so beautiful. And I know, you know, you're talking about microdosing. And yet I felt like in in the book, there are these, it's almost like you're learning how to not be happy, um, but but to be. Yeah. And um, so I want to talk a little about that. And I'll start with this quote. So Huxley, uh, writing about his experiences on mescaline, writes, To be shaken out of the ruts of ordinary perception, to be shown for a few timeless hours the outer and the inner world, not as they appear to an animal obsessed with survival or to a human being obsessed with words and notions, but as they are apprehended directly and unconditionally by mind at large. This is an experience of inestimable value to everyone and especially to the intellectual. And I would say to the writer, um, to anyone creatively embarking on a project, the sense of opening up to the mind at large. And I think one of the pleasures of the book is watching a writer, a creative person, an incredibly busy, productive person. I mean, Ayelet has, you know, produced this series of mysteries that are the chair of our department raves about the uh, mommy mysteries. Oh, so long Plus, ago. <laughs> like four literary novels, screenplays. Um, she's been a public defender, worked a lot on drug policy, which is also in the book, and um, has a marriage of, you know, almost three decades and four children. So when, when you talk about the sort of pathological irritability um, I think it's, I understand the seriousness of, of uh, the illness. And I also feel like um, we, we do something to ourselves. Um, you know, when you talk about your grief and shame at your behaviors, um, it's also that you're such a productive person. You're such a creative person. You're a person with such ambitions in so many directions. Um, it's hard to imagine not feeling frustrated when this huge world you've created butts up against um, your desire for solitude, peace, and, you know, that sense of flow in your own, in your yeah. own life. You know, it's interesting. It's like, I think, I mean, there is some place where where control, the feeling of, um, the, the desire for control and the fear of lack of control is in all of those elements. You know, if you're very productive and you're used to being able to control your world, then to feel out of control 
is terrifying. But I think one of the things that Huxley and that I learned from these um, from writers like him is that uh, is that you can't you can't fight that lack of control. What you have to do is lean into it a little bit. It's kind of like riding a motorcycle. I remember the first time I rode on the back of someone's motorcycle. Every time we went we rounded a a curve I leaned back because I don't want to fall over because you're le- so my impulse was to lean the other way but the actual the truth is that to real to ride that bike you have to turn into the curves and I think that leaning into the feeling of lack of control can be um a way to it can be not just empowering but it can be a way to manage all those anxieties and fears um but it's hard, you know, it really is very hard, particularly if you're afraid. And I think so much of what we're talking about when we're talking about anxiety, when we're talking about depression is, you know, there are all these secondary emotions, emotions like anger, emotions like, well, irritability isn't an emotion, it's a sort of a sensation, but but underneath all that lies some kind of fundamental fear. And um I resisted understanding that for a long time, and I don't think it's an accident that I began to understand that when I was taking a drug that helped me loosen up a little bit the, the um, you know, maybe get off the hamster wheel just a tiny bit in my brain. Right. I think another insight in the book that I really appreciated was some um, the sense that we're pursuing happiness, you know, with antidepressants, right. or we're, we're pursuing this idea of happiness, which is <clears throat> so not the point of our existence. Right. Um, but I think most people don't have a sense of what is the point of existence. So happiness is kind of easy to find, you know, if you like cheeseburgers, if you like drugs, if you like alcohol, if you like sex, it's sort of easy to find what you think might be happiness. But I and think- we also feel like there's a tremendous, especially in the United States, in, in, in our culture, there's this feeling like, like not being happy is somehow a personal failing that we, I mean, we have it written into our you know, the pursuit of happiness. It's written into our founding documents. Um, people, the best-selling books on the bestseller list are like, you know, 10 tips to being, ha- like all of this, these tricks to being happy. And I, and I, so in addition to feeling crappy because of this mood disorder and feeling these cycles, I was also, I had this very judgmental and continue to have, let's be clear. Like, it's not <laughs> like I'm like, achieve some kind of perfect enlightenment. There's this voice in my head that says, you're screwing up because you're not happy. You're failing at being happy. In addition to everything else you're failing at, you're also failing at this thing called being happy. What the hell is wrong with you? And I think what I started to realize during that month and I've been trying to maintain focus on since is that happiness is kind of beside the point. Um, That what I want is not to get to the end of my day and be like, well, that was the best day I've ever had, but really just to feel a sense of productivity, a sense of connection with the people that I love, um, a sense of um, usefulness, and that those things, I think it it can best be described as contentment, but even that may be overstating it. Um, And that makes for, you know, that makes for, for a wonderful life. But like being happy, I'm not sure... You know, I'm not sure that that's achievable for any of us as as much as we feel like we need it. I mean, think about the people you know who are happy all the time. 
You know I'd be them. <laughs> yeah, I think um, uh, it's it's come to be I mean, Donald um, Trump. Maybe he's very happy all the time. He's the happiest. <laughs> Um, it, it seems to me that what's more interesting than happiness is the capacity to make the kinds of connections that you describe making in the book, sort of realizing that your work as a public defender, your work, you know, um, uh, fighting for people who suffer most from the war on drugs, um, your own irritability are all part of your great work in this, right. in this moment. And so I think I, I feel really strongly, especially under the influence of a course I'm teaching this semester. I see some students here called Cosmological Powers with Brian Swim, which is about the powers of the universe and how they course through us. Um, we're not as independent as we think. We're not as individual and as, you know, sort of complex in our individuality as we think, but rather we're part of this larger machine generating insights, basically for the survival of our species. And I think the feeling of generating insights insights or even gleaning insights from others um, is one of the most satisfying parts of my experience. And to imagine that it's kind of biological, that in writing your book, maybe if even one sentence is generating an insight that might help me survive in the future, to help others survive in the future, and help people to be um, a little bit less miserable or prone to suicide or other unhelpful behaviors, is also a way of... Um, of uh, without uh, uh, aspiring to happiness or stupid happiness, a way of feeling connected in the right. world. Right. I mean, I think it's a distinction between joy and happiness. Right. Um, that feeling like you have, you can be part of this larger conversation, and that your words can have meaning beyond just your own personal experience, is a source of tremendous joy for me. Um, it's rare, but it's it's. Um, it's just, uh, it's, so, it's, I'm not looking for words. I mean, the word isn't satisfying. It's just deeply um, comforting, mm -hmm. you know, to be able to provide comfort for someone else. Uh, it's certainly not, I mean, it's why you do the work, although you're, you know, it, it's not necessarily the reason you start writing. I'm not, I've been trying to, I'm thinking a lot lately about like why I write because um, I have this repetitive stress injury and I can't type very much. My elbows are killing me and I can't dictate because apparently I think with my fingers and I've been um, trying to sort of figure out, well, why, why do I write? I mean, if I, what, what's, what would life be for me if I wasn't writing and why do I write? And I've come to the conclusion that I have to do whatever I can to get this thing back on track because what I, the, because my um, writing for me has become that primary avenue of connection and satisfaction and, um, and, in, and, and um, it's, it's both inward but also outward looking. Um, I have a thought about your writing. Can I tell you? Sure. Yeah. Um, I think in part um, you write to describe the experience and um, the experience and the purpose of women who are perceived difficult in our society. Yeah. <laughs> I think you're right. I mean, it's certainly, you know, I mean, that's certainly always what I write about. This idea that um, that uh, the difficult woman is, I mean, it, it's like it's it's so it's so it's almost a trope, but. I, oh, it's um, a trope. Oh, yeah, you know. <laughs> but we are we are all, I mean, how many 
do you know any women who are not difficult? The women who from whom you get the greatest joy, the you know the people you learn from. We are all difficult women, and trying to figure out why that is and how that is. And you know, my husband once said to me, and um, we were taught when we first got together, and he was talking about all the women he had been with, and he um, made some joke about, you know, when I said, well, God, I'm crazy. It sounds like they were all crazy too. And he said, well, here's the thing. If you're going to spend your life with interesting, intelligent women, of course they're crazy because to be an interesting, intelligent woman in today's society makes you crazy because of the fundamental injustices. And so, of course, you know, that's anybody who isn't crazy is, you know, delusional. So... (laughs) So I think that's what, you know, and it's funny because I've had conversations with editors where they'll say, oh, that character's not likable. And, you know, men are rarely told that about the, their mm-hmm. fictional characters. Mm-hmm. Like, oh, that's not, you know, nobody ever says to Jonathan Franzen, oh, that's not an unlikable character. But every woman writer, no matter who it is, is told, um, maybe you should make your characters more likable, less prickly, less demanding, less interesting, um, more, you know, soft, gentle, funny. Usually my response to that um, when I really have an editor pushing on me is to have one of my characters do something nice for an animal. Like pet a dog. And then they're like, oh, she's so likable now. I'm like, yeah, okay. Um, (laughs) She's just the same person, but she was nice to that cat. I wonder. Actually, not usually a cat. Cat's not good. Dog, dog. I was thinking about it watching um, The Other Woman, which is a film adaptation you of really your novel. You did your homework, man. Um, your novel, Love and Other Impossible Pursuits. Yes. And it's interesting. I mean, I, I, I wonder if you could talk a little bit about the ways that critics sometimes review your work or review that movie as if if you just made the character nicer, you know, or if, right. if the character weren't so irritating. Or yeah. um, Well, know. so this is a story, this is based on my novel, Love and Other Possible Pursuits, and it's about a, a woman who, um, she loses a baby. And she's, uh, but she's married to a man who has a child from a previous marriage, and she hates her stepson. And it really is, a, in many ways, a very traditional love story. It's about characters who can't, who loathe each other, who then end up discovering in a way that they're soulmates. But it, but it's her and her stepson who are, that's the real love story. And not, I'm not talking about romantic love. I'm just talking about how she grows into feelings of maternal love for this child. Um, but initially, she can't stand that little shit of a kid. And, um, and I have a lot of fun with that because if any of you have ever met children, some children are lovely and some are horrible. So it's, you know, <laughs> they're people just like the rest of us. So I had a lot of fun writing this um, woman who really couldn't stand this kid. And, and you know, uh, there are a lot of things. I, I try not really hard not to read uh, reviews because I'm much too thin-skinned. But I remember A.O. Scott wrote about that movie. He And, um, of course, I memorized the line. He, he said it was um, a not bad movie based on a pretty good book. Oh, that's pretty accurate. <laughs> the movie wasn't bad. The book's pretty good. That's good. I was like, I'll take that. <laughs> Um, I wonder if you feel like at some point in your career you decided to lean into who people say you are, or you know. Who- I don't think I it was ever. I just can't not. I mean, really, honestly, I 
it, there are so many times where things would have been better for me if I had just shut up, if I had leaned out, if I, you know, I, but I, I can't, I'm constitutionally incapable. And I, I periodically, I try, I'm like, I am going to be, you know, I model myself. There are a couple of really sweet people I know. I'm like, I'm just going to do Julie for this whole day. I'm just going to be, and I just, uh, you know, it lasts like 15 minutes. It lasts long enough for my kids to be like, what's wrong with you? Why are you, don't touch me like that. Why are you kissing me? So, um, you know, it really isn't a choice. I just think that the, you know, your personality is your personality and you just got to go with it. But I will say, I will say that one of the things that the microdosing did is it's not that it cured me of my mental illness or but it allowed me to do to make more effective use of a certain therapeutic modality so i began dialectical behavioral therapy um and the microdosing i i've been in cognitive behavior before i you know i've been in every kind of um, therapy before and i had just never like you know insight only goes so far i know what's wrong with me i just can't do anything about it so um yes my mother i get it we know um also your father ah my father yeah um so but it just it just you know i never could actually take the insights of therapy and translate the translate them into um behavior and even when i was in cognitive behavioral therapy and i was supposedly doing those charts like the thing i hate the most if any of you have been in cognitive behavioral therapy is to do those like anger worksheets where you like you've blown up at someone and then you have to like parse it all out and write it out what happened what was the inciting incident oh, i hate those but i start i was starting this dialectical behavioral therapy and something whether it was the behavioral therapy where there was that therapeutic um structure or whether it was the microdosing and i think it was the latter that made me more receptive to that therapy but that therapy has actually changed my life um over the course of the past couple of years i have um it's made me um like i i'm trying to figure out a way to say it because it's made my it has made me um much less emotionally labile in that i still experience all the emotions but i don't feel the need to act on them or i have alternatives you know i can i have these distress tolerance tools that i use i have emotional regulation tools so i'm much more better able to regulate unpleasant emotions than i used to be um it's really really hard work but for some reason i've been willing to do the work and that in a way has made me much you know i it's not that I'm a different person. It's that I am much less likely to lose control in ways that then cause me pain. And in a way, I seem, I, I you know, I seem very different. So people who have seen me, who who I haven't seen for a while, who who have come into contact with me, um, they'll be like, "Wow, you're so different." Is it the microdosing? And I'm like, well, maybe, but I think it's actually this really effective kind of therapy. Um, I don't know how many of you know about this uh, dialectal. Probably everyone in this room. Everyone, everyone knows about it. <laughs> yeah, it was created initially, Marshall Lenahan created it for people with borderline personality disorder, but it's been 
expanded beyond that to all sorts of different diagnoses. And um, I just think it's really marvelous. I think, you know, I think all the different pieces of it have been really effective for me. I even did, I even did these dumb worksheets. I recently had a work situation and I needed, I did a, what's called a dear man worksheet, which has like all of these. And I like sat down and typed it out. And then I had a conversation. I, I really wanted to bring my worksheet in and be like, I'm going to describe the situation. I'm going to describe my emotions. I'm going to assert my need, but, but I didn't. I memorized it and then went in, and it was incredibly effective and thus really empowering. So, um, so yeah, I mean, I'm still me. I'm still, you know, the same person that I always was. I'm uh, leaning in or leaning out. That's still who I am. But, um, but being able to more effectively regulate my emotions has been um, liberating and, um, and a huge relief. I mean, it is, it's, it's exhausting to be constantly at the mercy of, uh, these kind of cascades of emotion and pain and to be able to, you know, have a way to think about the pain that you experience. I mean, the trauma that you've experienced in your life without falling prey to it, to experience the grief without having it, um, destroy your capacity to get through your day is really marvelous and has been really marvelous for me. So I'm, I'm really interested in it. I think that's I'm what my, my next novel is actually sort of about inspired by that. It's about trauma and it's about war and it's about PTSD and it has a little bit to do with, um, with, uh, like the tools we use to recover from that. No drugs in it. Not yet. Right now, there's like a lot of there's there's a lot of stuff in it. It's it's still pretty much a mess. Like you know, there's a place when you're writing a novel, it's so much easier to write nonfiction. You just like do the research, tell the story, done. Um, With a novel, you have this. It's like a garbage can full of ideas and characters and story, and it's just all someone just threw it all into this big huge dumpster. And you have to wade into the muck and pick out the pieces and put them in some kind of coherent order. And I am far away from the coherent order pair. I'm just sitting in the middle of a really scuzzy dumpster right now with that book. <laughs> but hopefully, hopefully there's light at the end of the tunnel, mixing my metaphors. And moments of flow, moments of... Yeah, sometimes, definitely. I wanted to ask one more question about that. It was um, a moment in the book that... It just felt like, wow, you know, I, I want to go microdose right now. You know, it's <laughs> don't we? It's all. just just a favor for those Jeff around. Jeff Sessions, <laughs> where none of us are using any kind of illegal drugs. But but the 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 thought that um, this book could be incredibly influential in the future, and I think open up for lots of people the idea of trying something as opposed to the, you know, pharmacopoeia that's on offer. I know. Um, the drugs that, you know, we think of as so safe that are actually so much more toxic. So, you know, one of the things that makes me the happiest is that because of this book, there has been um, actual research that's starting in London about microdosing specifically. There's some energy behind it and some funding behind it. And they're going, because the thing that I say in the book is, again, I don't know. Without research, we can't really tell whether I was experiencing a placebo effect or whether there is a measurable response, a mood-altering response um, that you can experience using small doses of LSD. I mean, when you think about it, we call it microdosing, but why is the dose that we take 
a psychedelic dose. I mean, you know, it's just that happened to be the dose that makes you trip, which was everybody wanted. But like that, you know, we could think of a microdose as actually the normal dose of a drug like this, the maintenance dose of a drug like this. Um, and there's some great research starting. Um, I think if I, you know, I keep saying to my husband, I mean, I've been saying we're going to move since last November, but um, the second that this research continue, that, you know, someone does the research and there's, and there's a, um, a sort of medication model will move to wherever that is, be it England or Portugal. I mean, one of the beautiful things is America used to have this tremendous power over international drug policy. Um, the power of both the soft power of the American government and also direct treaty power, we controlled the laws that other countries that did that traded with us, we, we would assert control over their drug policy and their drug laws too. We would say you can't be a partner with America. We can't be a trading partner with America unless you criminalize drugs in exactly the same way we do. And now the beauty of having a psychopathic orange-hued monster as the president <laughs> is that nobody cares what American policy is in the rest of the world. And they are not governed. You know, We have no more soft power, and they don't feel like they have to comply with our dictates about things like drug policy. So even as we have reverted to this um, criminalization model that we're, we're going f you know, back in time, back far beyond where we were during the Obama administration to the worst the worst excesses of the war on drugs under Jeff Sessions, the most retrograde, evil, racist monster of an attorney general that you can possibly imagine. Um, the rest of the world is experimenting with things like real, true drug policy reform. So they're decriminalizing drug use and they're exploring potential avenues of legalization and they're exploring um, they're doing research on things like psychedelics and other drugs and um, you know there's tremendous potential for psychedelics to treat opioid addiction um, for example but we're, we're not going to see that in the United States but there are other places that are pursuing that so I'm really I'm encouraged by that and you know meet me in Portugal everybody <laughs> um I, I mean, you know, I allow myself in one of the chapters of the book to imagine like what real, what a, what a sane, supportive, rational drug policy would look like. And that's one of the things that I imagine is, you know, you get to, it's like Canyon Ranch, but for psilocybin. Yeah. Wouldn't that be awesome? Maybe not so expensive, like a cheaper Canyon Ranch. Thank you so much for coming. You've been listening to the podcast for CIIS Public Programs. Audio production was supervised by Lyle Barrer at Desired Effect. If you liked what you heard, you can subscribe on iTunes or visit our website at ciis.edu slash podcast.